Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Justice. Having made an error, justice needs to be served. In seeking justice, do we search to right the wrongs or to exact revenge? Now, this perplexing question is at the heart of Adam Wakeling's account of the Pacific War Crimes Trial in his book, Stern Justice. So, Adam, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. Good to be on the program. Now, the subtitle of your book is actually quite interesting. The Forgotten Story of Australia, Japan and the Pacific War Crimes Trials. I'm interested in that concept of forgotten. What's going on? When I began researching this book, I quickly discovered that many Australians, and myself included, didn't actually know that Australia conducted its own program of war crimes trials after the war. And the reason for that, I've come to realise, is probably just because nobody had any any incentive to talk about them. Um, The Japanese didn't particularly want to talk about this aspect of their wartime past. Uh, The Australians didn't want to talk about it, particularly when the 1950s came around and they wanted to bring Japan back into the fold as a wartime, as a Cold War ally and as a trading partner. So... The prisoners were all quietly released by the end of 1958, and after that, the trials weren't really talked about. But there's the reason why Australia actively pursued them. They were one of the first countries to start collecting information for trials before the war ended, and they were one of the last to finish running um, trials as well. So was it uh, an eagerness to find justice, or... Was there a sort of inferiority complex or was Australia trying to establish their own identity or presence? It's certainly a bit of... There was a very strong demand within the public for something to be done about Japanese war criminals. Uh, The Minister for External Affairs and the Attorney General through the entire process was H.V. Evatt, who had a very legalistic view. Um, He was a firm believer that the Japanese war criminals had to be dealt with according to some sort of process. And Australia, as you said, Australia did want to establish itself as being a player on the international stage. Um, in my first book, which is The Last 50 Miles, the end, Australia and the End of the Great War, I talk about that question of how Australia saw victory on the battlefield as being a pathway to having a seat at the table. And at the end of the Second World War, the Australian government took a similar approach although with somewhat less, less success because Australia wasn't as much of a, as major a player in the end of the Second World War as it was in the end of the First. And we'll be able to talk about some of those issues a bit later on, but let's wind back a little. You've laid out the atmosphere in Japan uh, that was sort of essential in terms of their attitude and their behaviour. Tension lay on the Imperial Palace over 10th and 11th of August. Nobody knew whether the Allies would accept Japan's counteroffer, and if they did so, whether the military would abide by the decision to surrender. In the period of government by assassination during the 1930s, young officers from ultra-nationalist sects freely killed politicians who opposed the militarist agenda, and there was no reason to think they would not do so again. So what was the atmosphere in Japan that sort of brought about Japan's behaviour but then sort of made everything so uncertain? This is a really fascinating question. Um, When you look back, for example, at the rise of fascism in Germany, this story is quite well known. A lot of people uh, in the West, if they're interested in history, will be familiar with 
Crystal Luck will be familiar with the Reichstag fire or the Enabling Act, the rise of the Nazi Party. A similar thing happened in Japan, but that story is much less well known. Um, it's quite interesting. It's quite lengthy and complex. I think I devote a couple of chapters of stern justice to how the Tokyo trial tried to dig this story up and uncover it and make it work. And definitely one of the um, what part of the legacy of the Tokyo trial is that it's left a record of how this happened. Um, once the militarists took command, took control in Japan, though they didn't, they never enjoyed complete support. We tend to think when we look back in the, the Japanese and how they were depicted as an enemy in Allied propaganda, they were depicted almost like as being termites, as like a massive people who were all exactly the same. But there was even through the war, there were elements of the Japanese government who had been sidelined, who were opposed to the militarists who didn't want the war and who wanted to bring it to an end. And as the war went worse and worse for Japan over 1944 and 1945, they became steadily more influential. But it bleeds into another question, which the book doesn't uh, claim to cover (laughs) at all. But we start to then wonder whether atomic warfare or the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were... I don't know if justifiable is the right word to use, but given the militarist sort of nature, the indecision, it it sort of bleeds into that notion of whether that was the only option or not. That is a very difficult question, even looking back today with the benefit of what we know now. From the research that I've done, I think it's possible or maybe even likely that ways could have been found for Japan to surrender without using nuclear weapons. But I don't think that was in any way obvious to the Allies in early 1945, particularly after the way Okinawa was defended and most Mm. of the civilian population of the island was killed in the fighting. And while we tend to think of the atomic bombs as being a departure from what the Allies had done before, in reality they had already killed hundreds of thousands of Japanese civilians with conventional bombs. And incendiaries and and all of those sorts of things. And we'll come back to that sort of issue, hopefully, <laughs> towards the end. But you've outlined three classes of war crimes, um, class A, B and C. What were they? So as the Second World War was coming to an end, the Allies had to decide what to do with Germany and Japan's leaders if they captured them. And so they decided, actually quite late in the piece, that they were going to have a full program of war crimes trials, and then they had to figure out what they were going to charge Germany and Japan's leaders and soldiers with. Um, So there were three classes of war crimes called Class A, B, and C. Class A was what were called major war crimes or crimes against peace. And this was starting a war in violation of treaties or waging aggressive war. There was no precedent for charging and convicting people with a crime for doing this. It had been seen as morally wrong before this point, but not actually a crime. But the Allies argued that the Hague Conventions um, meant that the countries which signed those conventions had renounced um, waging a war of aggression, and as a result, this meant that any leaders who did that were opening themselves up to be charged. Uh, the second class, Class B, was much more mainstream. They were on solid ground with this one. This is what we call conventional war crimes, like killing civilians, killing prisoners of war, this sort of thing. Um, they had been established going back into the 19th century, and the Allies had actually attempted to hold trials for Class B, what were called Class B war crimes after the First World War, although without success. There was still some precedent. Uh, Class C 
is crimes against humanity. Uh, this, again, had no real precedent because nobody up until this point had suggested that it was wrong for a government to kill its own citizens. The reason why Class C war crimes were created was basically the Holocaust. Uh, but because many of the people who were victims of the Holocaust were German and Austrian citizens, the perpetrators could argue they hadn't committed a war crime. They were just doing this to their own citizens. And the Allies decided to take the view that, no, this was a crime. And so they created this category. But now we come to one of the major problems. Uh, Is there such a thing as justice? Is there such a thing as a crime? Because, as you say, there's no precedent. But then you have all of the defence attitudes, approaches. Uh, We were following orders. Uh, How do you administer your law in another country? How do you bridge the gap between Western and Japanese justice? Notions of double standards. Uh, The notion that some of the um, officers used that we killed these uh, unarmed soldiers as self-defence. They could have attacked us. So you've got a myriad of problems here about how to administer justice in these instances. Yes, it was a hugely complex problem that the prosecution faced in the trials for all of these reasons. But how do you establish guilt then? If, If there is no precedent and uh, people are following orders, how, given your legal experience, you're a qualified lawyer, how do you establish guilt? So this was a challenge. On the following orders question, the Allies considered this, but then they decided that following orders would not be uh, grounds for being acquitted, but it would be grounds for receiving a lesser punishment. And the justification here was that if they allowed people to get off on the basis they'd been following orders, then this would leave international law in the hands of the most ruthless men. The people who were willing to kill their own subordinates would be the ones who would achieve their goals. So they felt there had to be responsibility on the people who were who had actually pulled the trigger or you know, done the act. Well, then you get to Hirohito as emperor. Was he guilty? Yeah, so then this is exactly the problem the Allies faced, is that, well, if... You know, if we hold responsible the people at the top for giving the orders, do we have to go all the way to the top to the emperor? And Australia wanted that. Yes, Australia wanted Hirohito prosecuted. Um, The other allies, the US and the UK in particular, did not. Uh, My view is that he was probably guilty in a legal sense, but there were good political grounds for letting him off. So my conclusion was that letting him off was a legal travesty but may have been a practical necessity. But again, justice... If you are, because of the geopolitical um, mechanisms and situations that then arose about putting a hedge in against communism, we needed Japan to be safe, we needed Hirohito to provide stability in Japan, etc. So is there such a thing as justice in these situations where your a political situation arises, we can bypass justice completely? So this was a question that came back to the came to the heart of what was the purpose of the trials. And it was one that the Allies may may have even struggled to answer all the way through the process, and even looking back today. Because at the beginning of the process, as H.V. Evatt said, our goal must be justice and not revenge. But there were grounds. You could make a very good argument that in some cases letting people off had a better outcome in the long term. Uh, With the emperor, for example, the decision not to prosecute him may have almost certainly did uh, smooth Japan's very difficult transition from totalitarianism to democracy. So this may have saved lives in the long run. So then you have to ask the question, well, if 
we can achieve this greater good of democratizing Japan and preventing another war? Do we put justice aside in this case? But there are other implications. I want to raise the story of Ishishiro, who basically was conducting medical experiments, the sort of Japanese mengler, uh, in Manchuoko, and he was not prosecuted because his research was taken by the Allies because he was experimenting with uh, diseases and all sorts of things and gases on the planks that he called the, the Chinese citizens, not prosecuted because the research could be used by the Allies. There were certainly some cases where somebody was not prosecuted for a reason that leaves a really bad taste in your mouth looking back. Uh, Shiro was one. Um, Colonel Suji was another one who committed atrocities um, all throughout the Asia-Pacific and then um, had a successful career as an anti-communist politician in post-war Japan under the protection of some American officers. Or... Kishi Nobusuki, who were, the Americans imprisoned him, considered prosecuting him as a Class A war criminal, let him go and then put money into his campaign and he became Prime Minister in the 50s. <laughs> it makes you wonder. But here's sort of the final question. How should such a book as yours be used today? We talked about the Forgotten War at the beginning. How should we remember then? I think the most important thing we can get out of stern justice in the Pacific War Crimes Trials and about the trials that happened at the end of the Second World War generally is to understand how essentially an ordinary person can come to commit an atrocity. And when we see something like the Holocaust or the Japanese war crimes, or even if you turn on the news and see obviously things that Islamic State has done to civilians in the Middle East, it's easy to look at that and say, well, they're psychopaths. I'm not a psychopath. I wouldn't. I would never do something like that. And the same argument could be said for dropping atomic bombs or uh, incendiary devices to destroy cities. Yes. So any anything that we would consider to be morally um, sort of put you in moral turpitude, you could make the same argument. Well, I would never do something like that. But when I, when I read many of the first-hand accounts of the war criminals themselves, the perpetrators. It was obvious that many of them were what we'd consider to be ordinary people. There's one of my favourite examples is of um, Lieutenant Suwaki, uh, who was the coach of the local middle school baseball team. And to see the, this, uh, and he was convicted on Manus Island and hanged for the execution of an Australian prisoner in Ambon. And to see, obviously, that sort of contrast, it, it's, I think it's an important to come to understand how people like this can be led to become what we consider to be monsters. Adam, we're going to have to finish the interview, unfortunately. It's a fascinating book. The detail in it is extraordinary. The book is called Stern Justice by Adam Wakeling, and it's a Penguin release. So, Adam, thank you for coming right. in today. Thanks, David. Jan? Oh, well, I'm going a bit lighter than that. I, I, I chatted with Sally Piper a little bit. What do you know about yourself? Are you a leader or a follower? Are you passive or aggressive? Do you have opinions or go with the flow? In The Geography of Friendship, Sally Piper puts these personalities into her characters. Welcome to Published or Not, Sally. Hello, Jan. Thanks for having me in. <laughs> I'm making you talk about your personalities, but three women, all in their 40s. Let's start with Samantha. What's in her life now? So Samantha, they're all, in, as you say, they're all in their 40s. And Samantha ha is in a marriage uh, that is uh, a lacklustre sort of marriage. She's the mother of 
three sons. She often wonders if she's raised good men and what it takes to raise good men. And she always questions herself as to whether she is a good mother and she struggles with her confidence in her body image and all sorts of things. She was a big-breasted Yes, yes. She was a girl that developed before the other girls and um, that can be good and that can also be bad for, for young girls, yeah. Well, now, Nicole... Nicole. Now, Nicole is a rule follower. She thinks if she follows the rules, everyone in society will follow the rules. And when it doesn't work out that way, as it doesn't on their first hike, uh, she almost becomes disillusioned with humanity. She loses faith in humanity. But she's also fearful. She is. She's running away. Mm. As one of her work colleagues says, she puts up walls rather than bridges. Bridges, she does, yeah. And Lisa? Lisa is the angry, feisty girl that (laughs) never never backs down and, and never has, not from when she was young. And even after the experiences they had as younger women, she still doesn't back down in her 40s. But it's something she's questioning whether maybe she needs to. Maybe she needs to be more reasonable. Maybe she needs to to take less the high stand. Yeah, yeah. This is a quote from the book. It's not so much anger or sh- she's showing courage as to get into a state of mind that overlooked risks and consequences. It cared nothing for dignity or honour or reputation, a wildly primal compulsion to protect at all costs. Yes, and she is the protector. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Lisa is losing touch with her daughter, Hannah. Uh, which she did with her friends and doesn't want this to happen. Where did these three friends meet? So these friends, they came together as adolescents and when they first started high school and they were misfits within the, the greater community of that school because uh, I my feeling is that adolescent friendships often form out of sameness. It's the girls that do think and dress the same way that form a particular group and that might be the sporty group and then the other group that dress, think and do all the same things, they become another group. But Lisa, Samantha and Nicole were all different. They didn't fit into any of those groups, but together they they formed a whole uh, the trio formed a whole, a friendship within themselves and, and that in their unity they had strength and they supported one another. So they were brought together by their differences, their unique differences from one another. Another quote. Misfits united through their differences. They only had to be themselves. That's what made their friendship strong. Mm-hmm. Now, Lisa was always the stroppy one, the loose cannon, the firebrand, and Samantha, the integral third wheel in their friendship, weighed uh, heavy by cares and responsibilities. And Nicole, fearful. So... They finished school, and what did they? What they decided to show their the independence and and to be adventurous and to do something that was different. So that's when they set off on a hike as uh, three young twenty-year-olds had not done this before, and they were wanting to do something different. So they decide they will go for a hike for five days through a wilderness area, and um, doesn't work out well for them. <laughs> Uh, Melbourne, we're quite, we know this wilderness area and many of us probably would have toured down there. Of course, this is around Wilson's. It is, yeah. It's not named for it in the book because I had to deconstruct the landscape quite a bit. But a lot of the, its features there are still very much the same. Yeah. I think it was that squeaky beach that they oh, I know where you are. I know <laughs> and that granite. This walk that they did just after school, something happened and they haven't spoken for 20 years. Lisa has brought them together again. Mm. And what does she want them to do? 
Lisa's, it's in many ways they've come back for selfish reasons. They've all agreed to come back for selfish reasons because they're all after something different by coming back. And friendship, hopefully, is finding their friendship again is hopefully one of those things. But it's about making peace with themselves. It's about about making peace with the past but it's also about making peace with the landscape that took something from them their innocence and it's almost like they want to confront that that place that did bad things to them and that they want to try and refine themselves who they were in their in their younger selves yeah. so redoing this walk the mm. walk that broke their friendship mm. well look anybody who's done any trekking out the bush that would know that walking Quite often it's the weather that plays an important role. This time the girls, the the women have got back together and it's sunny. But what was the weather like when they did it? So the weather after school was very changeable. It was it was erratic weather as it Wilson's Promets is renowned for. It can be glorious down there, but it can also be just extremes of weather come in very hot or very cold and windy and wet and so they had very changeable weather throughout the the hike they started off when the weather was quite good but then it became quite sinister and misty and windy and sound was distorted by the weather and it created new sounds that they wouldn't necessarily know the origins of them. So it almost it disorientated them, the weather, in many ways to um, make them less sure of themselves within that environment. With uh, nasty weather, you walk quite often within yourself and you yeah. don't notice things around you. You have, you know, sort of um, the, the hood yes. down yeah. and the branches are dripping and their menace is easily imagined. But now the three of them are more respectful of the geography. Mm. Uh, there's more enjoyment, you know, you can, you, with the descriptions of actually what they're seeing. Yes, well, they, they're trying to also come back to it and to lose the fear. This place just creates a sense of fear for them. So they've come back to it expecting to see that same fear feel that same fear again and that same treacherousness and menacing sense that they had when they were there for their first hike. And in some ways that unsettles them, especially Nicole. It's almost, it's um, it's an indignity to her that she's come back to this place that took something from her and all of them. And yet there's no mark. There's no mark on the landscape for her having been scarred in certain ways, emotionally and other ways, by being in this landscape. There's no record of her being there and she gets quite indignant about that. And um, that landscapes just move on in their own way and that as humans we might impact upon them, but they're quite oblivious to us in, in many ways. Yeah. And Samantha went through this landscape again, building little cairns yeah. that she knew weren't going to stay. Yes. You know, she just expected them to fall over. But it was Lisa... In this 20 years, she's become become very involved with um, uh, botany and she actually likes the idea that plants have order. Yes. Have yeah. And it's actually a delight that she, you know, sort of through your writing. <laughs> Plots the botany. <laughs> yes. Because I'm not very good at plants, I must admit. It took a lot of research to make sure that all the plants were appropriately in that place and that I'd named them correctly. But for gardening and, and botany and flora for, for Lisa, it's a place of calm for her that she doesn't otherwise have in her life. And it was gave her an opportunity to 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 be a gentler person. Um, oh. Yeah. 
And um, I look, one of the things about plants that I really liked is uh, she looked at all those grass trees and said, they're worth hundreds of dollars yeah. in the nursery. So she really <laughs> knew about those. But what is uppermost in their memories is what happened before, apart from the weather. What other shape did the menace come in? So the, the menace came well beyond the, the, the landscape. So just to fill in a little bit to give our listeners a context is, so they arrive at the trailhead car park and Lisa, who's the, the more feisty one, is also quite a, a wild driver. So she flies into the car park and it's a dirt car park and dust is spread out over the place and goes over the only other person who's at the car park, which is the man. And he's only ever named as the man within the story. So, um, and an altercation happens at the, the car park. It happens very early on the novel. It's not giving anything away there. And he heads off ahead of them, but he's, they know he's there and they don't see a lot of him, but his presence is certainly known. He makes sure his presence is known and it's almost a stalking sort of nature oh. about him. And, and, and each of the different characters uh, because of their personalities, perceive his presence in very different ways. So Lisa in many ways just refuses to believe he's even out there, that he's even a threat, that he even exists. But the other two are more cautionary, Samantha and Nicole, and they sense him more and more and fear fear grows. And that's when their personalities, these traits that they have, um, are probably brought to the mm. fore because fear has a way of Making, making people do and act in different ways that um, we don't really know how we will behave or act until we're confronted with the kind of fear that they were confronted with. Lisa had aggravated him with her anger. Nicole's fitness had caused her to be a target and Samantha's inability to calm everybody mm. and keep them together had brought blame and shame to them all. <sighs> Oh look, you know how difficult was it to pace the plot? You know, with the with the the well, different days. It well to help me do that, I actually went back and did the hike on my own for five days. Yeah, to um to to step to walk in their footsteps for those five days and experience that landscape with fear as they did. That was quite important to me that I did that. And um, it yeah. So really. The, the hike is a map and it's a map that I hold in my mind and whilst mm. I've deconstructed that landscape to be something else I can every step they take I can see where they are when I read through the novel again and just yeah just to walk with them and they walked with me on my own so I wasn't really on my own <laughs> well starting with an avalanche of rocks on them were they mm. falling or thrown and did the wind take the bikini the high watermark on the long beach where his footsteps suddenly disappeared and the mes message left on the path, this way, sluts. Mm. The tension grew. And what will happen next? Look, I'm going to get Sally Piper to read a little bit out of the book, The Geography of Friendship, from page 159. It's easy now for Lisa to see how successful he'd been at terrorising them. He gradually took their courage, then their sense of reason, and finally struck a blow at the very foundations of their friendship. He played them like puppets, pulled their strings, made them dance. He always had the advantage. Like any good hunter, he observed his quarry, came to understand something about them. Lisa expects his binoculars were trained on them many times saw their confusion when they came to the dead-end trail of his footprints, probably laughed out loud, 
especially if you witness Samantha's meltdown in the face of it. Saw later how stress and fatigue allowed them to forget who it was they were fighting as they started to fight against one another instead. She imagines he rejoiced at the way things unravelled. And yet, while he observed all these things about them, by the third night they still hadn't laid eyes on him since the car park. What a slippery bastard he was. <sighs> so we wonder, would the physical and mental hardships of redoing a five-day trek bring up more blame and shame or restore a broken friendship? Oh, look, I just read it and thought, I love having all those descriptions of the natural environment out there, but you could feel you know, this, this friendship between these women... Build, dissipate. And and unravel, (laughs) sadly. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And, um, well, you got to do the trek many times. (laughs) I did, and still doing it in my mind. (laughs) Look, it was just a fantastic story. Now, this isn't your first book. No, my first novel was called Grace's Table. That was published by University of Queensland Press in 2014. Yeah. yeah, very different story. Very and, but different. the um, UQP have picked up a, a sort of more a Victorian paste. I know you don't say it's Wilson's Prom, but no, you can sort of pick the no. weather and stuff. Yes, and it's I don't often name the places where I set my work. I think um, it, it can. I find it takes away some of my fictional ability, I guess, to to manipulate that environment, which I needed to for this story. So I think um, to not name it would probably made it the landscape writing stronger for that, not to be tied to place specifically. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, fantastic book. And I've been speaking with Sally Piper about her book, The Geography of Friendship, published by University of Queensland Press. Thanks very much, Sally. Thanks very much for having me in to speak to with you, Jan. Thank you. That takes us out for another another week, week Jan. Ticked off. Oh. Indeed. So um, an interesting time. We didn't have time to get through it all, but we will have to we go into... We didn't even have enough time to even welcome Phoebe onto the programme. Well, we've got a, a student here from mm-hmm. Swinburne looking at how we go about the media. So thanks for coming in today, Phoebe. Thanks for having me. And Jan, I'll see you next week. Next week. Thanks, David.